This is a Federal News Network podcast. When it comes to directed energy technologies like lasers and microwave weapons, the Air Force just doesn't have anything that's quite ready to deploy yet on a fighter jet. But a new modeling and simulation facility at Kirtland Air Force Base is going to try to make sure pilots are ready to use them once they are. The Air Force Research Laboratory just awarded a 10-year, $80 million contract to build a new virtual range for directed energy weapons. For more, Federal News Network's Jared Serbu spoke with Christopher Hurlbert, Deputy Principal Investigator for Modeling and Simulation at AFRL. The virtual range is going to be a simulation environment, so it's all computer-based and computer-generated, for warfighters to come in and work with new directed energy concepts in a simulated environment so we don't have to have people actually flying planes, They will be using computers with virtual reality goggles, such as the Oculus or the Vive, depending on what we have on hand. And that will allow us to test these concepts in a simulated environment, show where the capabilities are, where there are still capability gaps, and get warfighters used to these kinds of technologies that the research labs are building. And Chris, can you describe a little bit more about what this will actually look like if someone were to walk into the room? It's a virtual range, of course. It's not occupying a huge amount of real estate, but what's it going to look like? So what it's going to look like is it's going to be a very large auditorium with a lot of computer workstations. And then we actually have currently four simulated cockpits that are chairs with the hand-on throttle and stick interfaces so the pilots can actually have a throttle and a a control stick like they would in an aircraft and then the virtual goggles so they have the 3d visual of the cockpit and the environment walking in what you're going to see is just a bunch of computers and, and monitors and keyboards and certainly there are a lot of other simulators across the air force including ones that are designed to simulate flying um what makes this special? What capabilities does this add to the Air Force's existing modeling and simulation inventory? So what our virtual range brings to the Air Force here at the Research Labs is we are actually focused on the directed energy aspect of modeling and simulation and the war fight. So a lot of ranges are focused on aircraft, flight maneuvers, or using kinetic systems such as missiles and rockets that are already in existence. We are actually working on bringing lasers and high-power microwave weapon systems to the warfighter. So that's what our focus is on. We have the expertise to bring those into the simulated environment and show those to the warfighter. Right. That, that was kind of my next question. Are you mainly going to be modeling and simulating existing weapons that AFRL has already developed, or... Is this more geared toward future capability development? We're going to do both. We will model the ones that are already in existence and that we've already developed, but we will also be modeling future concepts and capabilities. Can you give us a kind of broad sense of what you're hoping the Air Force will be able to learn by virtue of having this capability? So what we hope to bring to the modeling and simulation community in the warfighter is the capability for the research labs to demonstrate its technologies and how we can fill those capability gaps that kinetics may leave behind and provide more support at less cost to the warfighter. When you have a system such as a high-energy laser that you can fire multiple times without having to reload it or go back and reload the aircraft, they're on there and it charges off of the systems already on the aircraft. That's a huge win for the Air Force and the warfighter. And when you're simulating weapons that are already in existence, that AFRL has already created, I assume that requires you to have 
pretty accurate digital twins of how those would behave in the real world. How close are you able to get? It depends on the system and its actual development cycle. So if it's a one that's close to production, we can have a full-on digital twin and get very close to that. If this is a concept that someone is tinkering with, for instance, in one of our other divisions here at the research labs, then what we would be able to do is take their best information, add it to a concept template, uh, possibly, and then work with that and then show a trade space where things may need to be adjusted to have more power, less weight, and such like. Um, understand this is a 10-year program, $80 million, substantial investment there. Sounds like there's going to be more involved here than just an off-the-shelf Oculus headset. What's going to happen, actually, over the life of that 10-year program? So a lot of what's actually going to happen is a combination and integration of different technologies that allow for modeling and simulation, as well as the development of a library of concepts and particular weapon systems platforms such as aircraft, spacecraft, surface vehicles that allow us to bring in a concept added onto a particular platform, such as the back of a truck, onto an F-16, F-15, F-35, whatever the concept owner wants, and then run that through a simulation, bring warfighters in so they can do man-in-the-loop interface with it and run that. So there's development on concepts, there's development on integration of the software technologies, and then there's development of a scenario or a range for the warfighter to fly through. The virtual range is just one part of what we're going to be doing. So it's the flashy, we get the warfighter in there, but we also do a lot of studies that are just constructive where it's all digital and all runs on the computer to really fill out a trade space. Christopher Hurlbert, Deputy Principal Investigator for Modeling and Simulation at the Air Force Research Laboratory, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy. His name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just 
really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village. That was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called Labor and Employee Relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, 
I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is. I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Everything's getting more expensive these days. Gas, rent, and even your music. While other music services keep jacking up their prices, Live One is letting you lock in the best music membership at the best price. Live One Plus is just $3.99 per month. Get all your favorite music ad-free, along with unlimited skips and maximum audio quality. Beat inflation with the best deal in music at just $3.99 per month. Visit liveone.com slash best music to get Live One Plus now. Many of us, if we're being honest, have given up hope on good sleep. But why? Well, if you're like me, you've tried everything, and nothing has helped, so if we're not going to sleep well anyway, why try? That kind of thinking is so 2021. It's time to rethink our nights and days and demand more from our sleep. Talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more.